Hello and welcome to Plant Pals, my podcast where I talk to my pals about plants. I'm your host, Mike, and my guest this week is Ash Gill, a PhD student out of Ohio State University studying plant systematics. I'd call her systemicist, but I can't say it fast enough for the flow of the intro. Also, shout out my buddy Justin, aka Iron Heartstring on social media, once again for editing this. That's why it sounds so damn good. My name is Ash Gill. I am a botanist and PhD student at Ohio State University, and I research plant systematics. What is plant systematics? So systematics is similar to taxonomy um, in the sense that it deals with the recognition and classification of biodiversity, Um, but systematists do this through an evolutionary lens. So... You are the ones kind of deciding what gets lumped where or split how? Yeah, a lot of that work is done by systematists. Um, So because nowadays it's generally accepted that we want to name species um, from monophyletic groups, um, that's where systematics comes in. Um, So there are all these tools, like phylogenetics is a whole set of tools that systematists use, for example, um, to establish that lineages are distinct and monophyletic. And then there's a lot of work on what the criteria should be for a group to be named as a species or not. Very cool. How did you get into that? Is this just you fell into it doing other things? I feel like, all right, I don't mean any disrespect to systemicists, which I cannot pronounce clearly, or taxonomists, but it seems like you have to be a very specific kind of person because it seems like an incredibly challenging field always. Yeah, I don't know. So for me, I took, I know everyone says like, oh, I took a roundabout way to get where I am. But I think for me, that's really true. So um, I grew up in a really botanically interesting place um, in New Hampshire's White Mountains. And it's really cool because it has a lot of interesting flora, a lot of disjuncts. But I was completely plant blind. Um, It was a very rural community. My school was very underfunded. We didn't have anyone to teach us anything about botany. And so my first degree, it's a bachelor's of arts in political science. You know, that's what I did. And I worked in nonprofits and so forth. And um, then I worked for the Appalachian Mountain Club up in the mountains in the wilderness. And that's where I started to notice plants and be like, wow, this is really cool. I want to learn more about this. But I still felt like botany was kind of inaccessible. You know, there was no INAP back then. Um, I didn't really know where to go to learn about this other than to go get a second degree, which years later I ultimately ended up doing. And that's kind of where I learned botany. So I was at Oregon State University um, in their botany program. And even there, although I always really liked the idea of field botany, I ended up studying plant pathology because I was really interested in interactions between plants and fungi or bacteria, other um, organisms. And so I did that for a while. That was really cool. For a while, I thought, you know, maybe I would go on and be a plant pathologist, maybe someone who monitors crops and so forth um, for disease. But 
Then through just like, I'm an avid hiker and backpacker. I love being outside and I had certain plant taxa that I was really interested in. So when it came time to go to grad school, I thought, well, maybe I should work with someone who works on these plants and I could work on native plants. Um, And that would kind of merge a lot of interests that I had, being outdoors, hiking, um, seeing the native flora, and then being able to do grad school with something in that vein. Um, And that's kind of how I ended up in this systematics lab because my PI is an expert on these plants, the monotropoids that I'm interested in. And so I came here to Ohio to work with him because he works on those. But when I was applying to grad school, I was also looking at like another lab that's more of an ecology lab that works on mycoheterotrophic plants as well. Did you hear about how they found... Uh, Terraspor and Dromedea in Massachusetts for the first time ever, like last month. Yeah, I did hear that. And I was kind of surprised. I, I wasn't aware. Yeah. I knew that it was rare in the Northeast, but I wasn't aware that it had never been found in Massachusetts. And I don't know about you, but I just thought that was so interesting because it's everywhere in the Pacific Northwest. And it's weird to think of it being rare anywhere. Yeah, I like I just associated. I mean, I do this a lot with plants. But like, if I learn it in a certain region and I see it outside, my mind is just blown always. Being like, oh, this crazy weird parasite from the western part of North America just showed up in the state I grew up in. Like, oh my god. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Sometimes I have that reaction. A lot of times it's like if it's something I'm really used to seeing a lot. And so for me... Terraspora is definitely one of those plants. I'm like, ah, oh, another one of those. And everyone's like, what? This is amazing. And I'm <laughs> like, ah, oh, okay. <laughs> it's like Monotropa uniflora in California. It's pretty unusual to come across that species mm-hmm. in California. And Californian botanists get super excited about it. Like this summer, I was out with um, this botanist named Gary Lester um, in Prairie Creek Redwoods. And he was like, yeah, I really hope we can see this. And I was like, yeah, okay. Like it's kind of... It's just around, you know, it doesn't seem special to me because I've always been lucky enough to live in a place where it's pretty abundant. Yeah, no, that's it's so funny. I have friends here that are like, that's their top of their list. I'm like, oh, dude, let's go to my parents' house. It's right down the street. (laughs) Yeah, there's so much of it in New England. Uh, That got a big shuffle in recent years, that subfamily, right? The monotropoids? Yeah. Um... Well, I don't know. What do you mean? Tell, say more about that. Well, so as I understand it, there was Uniflora, and then there was Sanguinea got split out of that. It was a subspecies. And then there's the, God, I don't even know how to say it, Hypopides, Hypopitis. Yeah. Okay. So, so there's always been um, Hypopides. Hypopides, as I say it, um, is one of the species that I work on. And so it's still currently recognized as just one species. Mm. And according to some entities, it's still in the same genus as Monotropa uniflora, Monotropa hypopides. Um, That is outdated because we've known for at least two decades, there's plenty of published literature that show that Hypopides is not the sister species to Monotropa. It's actually sister to Pityopus. Um, But there's some catching up to do there taxonomically, um, put it that way. And then there's also probably more diversity in the genus Hypopides than has been recognized up to this point. Mm -hmm. 
So that's one thing. And then Monotropa uniflora um, has been recognized for a long time as being just, you know, one species. And then a couple of years ago, one of my predecessors um, here in the Freudenstein lab, uh, Ashley Kiesling, split out Monotropa bretonii, which is down in Florida. There's also this species that I've come across, uh, Monotropa coccinia or coccinia, um, which is known from Mexico. And that one is really red. So maybe that's what you were thinking of when you mentioned sanguinia. Yeah, no, I mean, like, I have a bad memory as is, and it seems like it's a bit of a mess taxonomically, but I thought there was a red one in the Northeast that was teased oh, out as its own species. So, okay, yeah, that's another Hypopides thing. Um, okay. So Hypopides lanuginosa is a species that is very red, and it has sort of orangey bracts, and it blooms in um, around this time of year, starting around now until uh, like as late as October. And it's pretty common in the Northeast. And so this is a taxon that is not officially recognized at this point, but it had been proposed a long time ago. And so people have sort of picked this up and started using this term um, more frequently in in later years. Um, So that one is one that we're working on. Um, it's a little tricky because it has very distinctive morphology, it seems. Yet, when we do the genomic side of things, there are some that don't look like that one at all. They look like mm-hmm. this other clade, which we refer to as the northern clade, which is also in New England. Um, yet, they fall out with Lanuginosa. So, that's kind of been a tricky aspect of trying to do that species delimitation is we need to figure out like how to deal with this sort of hypopodes lanuginosa sensulato group that don't really look like they should, but they still group with all the other ones that have that unified um, morphological feature of being really like deep pink red and having those kind of orangey bracts. Do you know what causes the color change? If it is one species... Like, is it a certain fungal interaction that makes some bright red, some pale yellow? Like, do you know what's going on? It's just, it's such a striking color sometimes. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And actually, there's also hypopodes in um, the Southwest that is also like really, really vibrantly red. And um, it doesn't seem like... Based on the work that we've done with both Monotropa uniflora, which can sometimes be pink, um, and with Hypopides, it doesn't seem like it's the fungal partner that is responsible for different coloration because we have um, some clades that are, you know, they, they have a lot of different colors that they show up as, and that doesn't seem to be faithful to any particular, like, change in fungal host. Mm. Um, but that being said, there are some clades that do have like pretty unified morphology where maybe, you know, they have this, um, phenotypic color variation that's really bright and, uh, uniformly that way. And they all associate with, in some cases, like one species, um, of fungus. So for example, the one that I was referring to in the Southwest, that one really only associates with one species of tricholoma. And all of those are, you know, really pinky red. But it's not clear whether that's simply because 
of, you know, some other factor, not just the fungal host. It may be that like this clade is sort of distinguished by the fact that it has this one host and also it has this other morphology. Okay. What hosts are typical? What do they associate with? All hypopodes that we've found to date associate with tricholoma, um, species in the genus tricholoma. Um, And what we find so far is that, let's see if I can say this in a way that makes it clear. Um, So the clades associate with species of tricholoma that are closely related to each other, but distantly related to the species of tricholoma that other clades associate with. Oh, cool. So if you kind of think of like phylogenetic trees matched up together, you know, they tend to either focus on one or like a handful of tricholoma species that do seem to be closely related. There are exceptions to that where there are clear host switches, um, but that seems to be the case so far. And we're still working on this. So it's kind of in process. Wow, that's really interesting that it kind of lines up with certain clades of tricholoma too, or clades, I don't know. but Yeah, and it's tricky because um, on the fungal side with tricholoma, tricholoma has been a dumpster genus. So there's a lot, <laughs> like when you go on GenBank and you like get down all of, you know, the tricholoma sequences that you can, you make a tree out of it. It's like a lot of those names might not really be real, right? So it's like... You might have a group that's really closely related of tricholomas, and that that might be like three different tricholoma species. But like, are those really three different ones, or are those all like three of the same thing? It's hard to say because no one's really done all of the work that it would take to sort out um, the tricholoma phylogeny yet. Yeah, I've heard mushrooms kind of break down the species concept the second you try to pin one down. Like, it's just so diverse and there's so much going on yeah it's tricky with the fungi like i mean i'm probably speaking out of turn a bit because i don't work on um in that kingdom of life but um i feel like there's been a lot there's a much more rich history of research on plants and there's been a lot more like funding and attention given to plants compared to fungi and so in some ways like they're a little bit behind where we are in terms of like For example, barcoding is still a thing um, for a lot of groups of fungi in terms of understanding their evolutionary relationships, whereas that's not really happening with plants anymore. Like you would Mm -hmm. never just try to name a species off of like one locus um, in the plant kingdom that wouldn't be accepted, but it is accepted for some groups of fungi. Um, Could you explain what barcoding is? Yeah, sure. So barcoding, um, as I have always understood it, is kind of like a quick and dirty way to understand diversity in groups that haven't been very well worked out. So you see this heavily in bacteria and in some groups of fungi and even in certain insects like um, parasitic wasps, for example. Um, So basically you'll have a region um, of the genome. And so for fungi, it's ITS. And so you'll have that area and you'll sequence that and then you'll like go and you'll blast it against everything and and NCBI at GenBank and be like, okay, like how, like what hits do I get and how similar is it to everything else? And um, that 
gives an idea of whether this might be something novel or if it's just, you know, another example of something else that's already there and gives you an idea of how to place it in a gotcha. I swear genetics is a mistake. Everything was fine and nested and settled. And then all of a sudden APG comes out and blows it up five times since the 90s. Yeah, I don't know. It's good though, because I think it does really help in terms of like when you have a tricky group and maybe it seems, you know, very morphologically variable, um, you know, genetics can really help you sort out like where gene flow is still occurring and where it's not anymore. um, And you have monophyly. Yeah. No, I mean, it's so nice to know that once now, once a species is settled, it's probably going to be settled unless there's some kind of iconoclastic thing on the larger scale. Um, Like just going through the synonyms for some species of plants and it's like 50 names long over the years. People have categorized it and recategorized it like just like, no, it is this. I looked at its genes. That's as close to it as you can physically get. It's done. Yeah, it's funny. Like. I think about this a lot because there are some species that, like some of the stuff that I work on, I look back at the old literature and I'm really impressed at like how much old timey botanists knew just by Mm -hmm. morphology that kind of got lost for like maybe 50 years. Um, And now that we have, you know, all these genomic methods, we're able to say like, no, like JK Small was right about this. You know, this other person was wrong. But then at the same time, they're also, you know, as you were referring to, there's like all these wacky names where some botanists were just naming everything that they saw that seemed a little different without the time and attention to detail. And, you know, I think it's a it's a cautionary tale. I think it is really important to do like delimiting species is a lot of work and it's it starts with, you know, maybe you notice a morphological difference or maybe you do some genomics and that gives you like a hypothesis, like, okay, this seems different, but you still have to do the rest of the work mm-hmm. in order to be sure. Otherwise, you end up with these meaningless taxa that ultimately, you know, just get, you know, they're not accepted or they cease to be accepted. And then you end up with like 40 species names that, you know, might be for this one thing. Nobody really uses them. And when you do try to recognize new species, you have to go back through these exhaustive lists to try and figure out which one fits the best because you can't just come up with a new name Mm -hmm. due to the rules. And yeah. So seeing it kind of in situ is almost as important as the actual genomics, like seeing how it's expressed when it's behaving as it should. Yeah, so uh, that's a good question. And it's something that I think is debated among systematists. Um, But, and, you know, this gets into species concept stuff, essentially, like what is the criteria for something to be a species? And that's something that like my advisor has written on and also one of my committee members has written on. Um, And it gets a little theoretical, but I do think it is important that species are meaningful. And by Mm -hmm. that, I mean that you shouldn't need to have a lab to be able to know what you're looking at. Um, I think that's really important because a lot of us do what we're doing for conservation reasons. Like, you know, um, systematists will say this all the time, you know, like, oh, biodiversity is important that, you know, we know what that is for conservation. 
and all these other like downstream reasons. But if somebody in the field can't look at a plant and use a key to be able to figure out what species that is, then it breaks down. Like you're not going to be able to conserve something if you need to like sequence its genome to figure out whether, you know, it's this yeah. or that. Um, and so I think it is important to see things in the field. I, For me with, you know, the work that I do, I really want to see that this is like a genetically distinct lineage and that it also has some aspect of um, its niche that is unique from closely related species. And that might be um, something that's part of its phenotype, like how it looks, or it might be something that's more a part of like its extended phenotype. So like what it interacts with in the ecosystem or like substrate or, um, you know, in some cases it's like if it's confined to a particular region, you might be able to make the argument that, you know, that makes it distinct, but just something else, not just like, oh yeah, this, you know, has different genetics, so it should be its own thing. I don't think, I don't know how much I ascribe to that particular way mm-hmm. of delimiting species. Yeah, I mean, Camisoniopsis is a genus that, you know, it's a valid physical trait that helps delineate species, but one of the major key breaks is pollen grain shape and size. And it's like, well, I'm out in the field. I don't have a microscope to do microscopy like on this dead log right now. And do, it's just like for, for conservation's sake, if this thing's about to be turned into a parking lot and I can't determine whether or not this is a hyper endemic or the most common weed in the world, like what, what good is that? Yeah. Yeah. That's, I mean, I think about it a lot and it's something that, like I said, it can be a little controversial I've definitely asked some academics this question, like, well, how do you deal with, um, you know, cryptic species in the sense that, like, cryptic where it's just some, like, feature that you're not going to know unless you have a lab. Um, And some of them get really heated and they're like, no, this is, like, biodiversity. It's super important that you recognize it. Um, And then some of them feel differently where they're like, yeah, it has to be meaningful to the people who are on the ground doing the conservation work. so, yeah, I, I know my opinion is that, you know, I agree with you. I think it's important for field botanists um, and other biologists out there to be able to recognize what they're seeing. I mean, I guess I like, OK, I want everything to be conserved regardless. So I'm like, yeah, we can use like hyperlocal micro species types to make that argument. But like at the same time, for for me, like I, I always make the joke, I'm a lumper on the clock and a splitter when I'm just hanging out because like I have to go, go, go get these surveys done. I can't be measuring wavy hair sizes on the inflorescence every single time I stop at a stand of something, you know? Um, so can we talk about your pity? Oh God. Can you say it one more time? <laughs> um, yeah. Pity opus. Pity opus. Yeah. Sure. With that. Um, so yeah, that's one of the projects that I'm working on. And um, side note, I've been sort of considering switching to the master's program. And if I do that, then Pityopus will be what becomes my thesis. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so Pityopus is this plant um, that's part of the subfamily Monotropoidae in the blueberry family. And it doesn't make chlorophyll because it's an obligate parasite of fungi. Um, typically, um, those fungi are in the genus Tricholoma, as with its sister species, Hypopides. And yeah, it's small and it's white and succulent. I mean, you've seen it. Um, and what our preliminary data 
show is that genomically, it seems like there may be more than one species in the genus. So currently it's monotypic, meaning there's only one species in the genus. Seems like there might be more. Um, And so I've been doing the work to try and expand our genomic sampling and also to look at morphology and ecology and um, niche and just to see if we can get some other lines of evidence to support this. Um, And in addition, I'm also interested in looking at, you know, some of the drivers of this divergence that we're seeing among these different clades that, um, that are in the group because they tend, they are, they seem to be occurring at these known phylogeographic breaks in the state of California. And so that's always really fascinating to me. I love biogeography and, um, I just think it's so interesting to try and think about like, okay, like how did this, how did this happen? How did these two things diverge? Yeah, I know Santa Cruz mountains is such a weird little hotspot for that, where we have the Southern end is, you know, the arid areas are starting to have, not starting to, they have more Southern California species, but with an overstory of something you'd find in Northern California. It's just like, it's such a fascinating little pocket of, like, oh, very recently, this was a very cold area, but now it's starting to warm up a bit. Things are moving. You're finding weirdos. There's diversification happening, like the sand hills. Um, and it's just like Big Sur, I've been surveying a lot lately. And that's just like such a good poster child for weird microsites supporting things that shouldn't be there, but they are. Like, I just, that's my biggest interest, I think, right now is just how those little drivers or things that can persist because, you know, in the well we were talking about before like kentucky's not the midwest is it the south is it kentucky they have i think it's kentucky i don't know that area you know mid appalachians have these caves that have such cold air that these little pockets of like cooler climate communities of ferns and shrubs can persist only because this mouth of this cave is that cold like blows me away every single time yeah the mountains on the california coast have a very rich history um, that's led to some really fascinating population dynamics. Like, I mean, I don't know that much about Santa Cruz specifically, but my understanding is that, you know, in the past when the sea levels were a lot higher, basically a lot of the mountains were, you know, more more isolated populations. Um, So yeah, it must be really fascinating to live in that spot and be able to go out and see what's there. Yeah, and it's kind of feels similar to the Northeast where you had the glaciers scrape it clean, except for a refugia here and there. And now you have all these weird novel communities. Like, does New Hampshire have any pine barrens? No. So, well, I don't think so. I don't think that it has anything that would be considered a pine barren. Um, but New Hampshire has a lot of remnant boreal forest um, Mm. in the north. And so that's where a lot of the interesting botany comes in. Um, There are a lot of disjuncts that you wouldn't find until you get like, you know, as far north as Alaska um, up on the mountains in the whites. And that's pretty interesting. Yeah. I just found out recently that my hometown has uh, Picea Mariana, I believe, the black spruce. Oh, okay. It has a, like a, that. That's pretty far south for that. Yeah. And I guess it persists down into like Pennsylvania, New Jersey. But yeah, like my whole life, I just I thought it was this weird, you know, more northern New England thing. But it's it's right there. It's and is it in bugs? Time. 
Yeah. Yeah. There's just a weird relictual bog there. Uh-huh. Yeah. Black spruce, tamarack, like community mm-hmm. in the bogs is really common. Yeah. That's cool. It's really, it's always, I think it's so neat how those tree species can tolerate like living in a bog. Yeah. Yeah. It's so cool. Um, okay. Well, I feel like I've been grilling you about questions. What do you want to talk about? What have, what have you been interested in lately? I don't know. Um, hmm. I feel like I'm always interested in everything, right? Especially like I just got off of field work and, you know, I don't know if this happens to you when you're in the field, but I go out there and I just start to get really curious about like everything I'm seeing, you know, I'm like, mm-hmm. oh, like, you know, people sometimes ask me like, oh, what's your favorite plant? And I'm like, I don't know, whichever way the wind blows that week, like Seriously. I have so many favorites and I see stuff. Um, and I'm like, oh, like, so for example, recently I was in the Northeast Olympic mountains cause um, I'm doing this work out there on these like disjunct genotypes and disjunct species. And, um, so I saw this like Luisia columbiana and I was like, God, that looks so much like Luisia liana, which is this other species that's really only found in the Klamath-Siskiyou Basin. And I was like, God, that's so weird. I wonder, like, I wonder how closely related they are. And then I was like, oh, wait, like there isn't a tree for Luisia. Like people haven't done the phylogenetics on that group mm-hmm. yet. Um, so then I was like, oh yeah, like I want to do that. Like I want to do that as a side project. And, you know, I start thinking about just all this stuff. I'm like, oh, why is this here? Why is that there? Why does this look like it's associating with this? Um, yeah, I don't know. Does that happen to you when you're out and you start to just like, oh yeah, it's like crippling sometimes. Cause I can't get anything else done. i just want to know everything about everything I'm looking at. And it's like, <laughs> you ever, you, you ever just feel the need to like, be near a plant like you just you want to see it so bad now that you see it you're like i'm just gonna be here now like i'm just gonna sit next to it and look at it and like take a minute alongside it yeah sometimes i feel like a lot of times though like the harder i have to look for a plant the more like underwhelming it is when i finally see it. <laughs> like i remember i really wanted to see so you know cypripedium montanum mm-hmm. So that's not very common in Northern Oregon um, and Southern Washington. It, I think, used to be a lot more common, but today it's not. And so there are a few places you can go to see it um, that are near Portland, where I used to live. And so I remember one spring, I was like, this is it. This is a spring. Like, I'm going to go out and I'm going to see Cypripedium montanum. And so I knew of this one locality um, kind of near Mount Adams. And I was like, I'm going to go out there and I'm going to look. So I spent like a couple of days in that area. It's a really awesome area botanically. So it was fun to go out and look for it, but I didn't find it. And so then I knew of this other place and I like drove three hours. Like I was like, okay, it's like down, you know, this forest road. So I parked and there was like a gate that I needed to like walk another like three miles, uh, <laughs> you know, along this river. And it was nice. But then when I finally like, found it i was like oh okay there it is yeah and uh i don't know it just felt so underwhelming i was very pretty but i don't know sometimes when i have those experiences i'm like it's way better to just come across cool stuff um just you know happenstance like you're like whoa look at that thing that's awesome i feel like that's when i have those moments when i haven't spent too much effort actually trying to find something it feels more special (laughs) I've definitely gotten lucky. Most of the rare stuff, like my lifer list, quote unquote, I have seen just by like stumbling past it. Being like, oh, oh, there that is. Oh, okay, cool. Like did it, <laughs> you know? That's awesome. And I do love an expedition though. Like 
Okay, I don't know. It's like half and half. This past week, I was working up in Big Sur, and they have Abies bracteata, which is this local paleoendemic fur from, you know, it's this ancient lineage of fur. It's only member of its section. Um, only grows in these moist micro sites on like northern and eastern slopes most of the time. Um, it's just somehow persisted in this one little strip of land on the coast uh, since before the ice age even. And like, you know, I had the roads are all blown out from the fires and the rains. And I had plotted this hike that was going to be like three. No, it was going to be 5,000 feet of elevation gain over like three and a half miles. Um, and so I was thinking about it. I was plotting the course. I was like kind of feeling it out, seeing how to do it. And luckily I got to drive up for work to basically the base of its biggest stand area. And, you know, like after driving and surveying all day in the heat and the bugs and the dust, I had finally found it. And I was like, oh, yeah, no, that's a tree. Like it kind of, I don't know. There was that, I didn't have that like crawling to the mountaintop to find the AVs <laughs> kind of thing. Um, but yeah, no, like I definitely, or I'm kind of the opposite too, where I've had times where I've gone camping, you know, driven two and a half hours hiked camps got the next morning we find our target species like 10 a.m like what do you want to do now like this is our whole thing <laughs> like oh damn it yeah um but yeah no that's that's always been it's like such an odd hobby i feel like to be like oh i'm gonna drive for three hours hike for three miles just so i can see this thing maybe if it's in bloom but it's like so much fun yeah, yeah, definitely. And I feel like no one understands other than, you know, like other nerdy nature people. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like uh, my like friends and my partner, I'm like, oh my God, amazing. Like, here's a thing. And they're like, all right, whatever. Like, you do you. <laughs> and sometimes I'm just like, how can you not think this is like so incredible? Look at it. Like, yeah. I know a coworker and I were talking about, we had seen Cycladenia humilis, which is this weird little monotypic. Uh, a Posinaceae member. It's like this low-growing thing. We just basically found a bunch of gigantic, like semi-milkweed-looking fruits growing out of this weird glaucous leaf on a talus slope. And we're like, "What the hell?" And we spent the next fifteen minutes figuring out what it was. We're talking about like, okay, so if you're up there already, you're a pretty serious hiker, at least. Like, is that plant going to stop you? And are you going to be like, "I need to know what that is"? You're going to go like, "Huh, that's weird," and just kind of keep cruising. Because like, I feel like. People who aren't necessarily big fat plant nerds enjoy seeing plants, but that spark of like compulsive having to know everything about it isn't quite there. And I'm like wondering what that like crossover threshold is from going from, you know, naturalist to botanist almost. Yeah, that's a good point. Because I also think a lot of people who like, especially if you're like at altitude. So you've had to hike for a long time to get there. And maybe there's a really stunning view. <laughs> I feel like a lot of people yeah. who are up there are just like, A, they're tired and they're not going to be like, cool, let me just like squat down and like stop here when I'm so close to the top or whatever it is. Um, and then some people are just going to be like, woo, I made it. Like, let's like, you know, take photos of the landscape and then like run down or, you know. Um, so yeah, I don't know where that line is. I mean... I think it depends. It took a long time before I became the kind of person who wanted to stop and look at the plants. Like, I mean, even when I was like halfway into my botany degree at Oregon State, I still would go out for long hikes. And it was all just about like 
the views, like being outside, like mm-hmm. doing as many miles as I could. And in no way was I like that concerned with looking at like the plants and anything more than like a cursory glance. Yeah. Um, and so I think, I feel like for me, it started to be when I realized that, you know, there's just a lot of cool stuff that you can see when you're in a unique environment that you can't see when you're down, like, I don't know, in the valley, walking around, like that's, it's just going to be a whole different community. And it's really cool to go up and see those. And, you know, when you're like, oh, I'm here on the side of this mountain and I don't get to be here every day, maybe half the year it's completely snowed in. So like, this is my chance to see these Mm -hmm. things in bloom or whatever. Yeah, it's almost like a puzzle to solve sometimes. Every single species has a story of how it got there and why it persists there. I feel like as you learn more and more deeply about every species that you see, like on a hike, for example, you're kind of patching together the last 10,000 years of biogeography and climate change. And it's just like, it's almost like you could time travel. Like, oh, I saw this tree and this tree grows here, but it used to grow everywhere, but now it only grows in this one spot because of X, Y, and Z. And you're like, I now understand how this place looked 10,000 years ago. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And especially when you see like communities where, you know, like there are a bunch of species that seem to have the same kind of pattern. Like, that's really cool. And then you're like, oh, like this isn't just like some, you know, dispersal event over macroevolutionary time. This is like, there was really like something going on here, like something going on on this one peak or something like that. Yeah. The redwoods in Big Sur, you know, they cling to the valleys and northern slopes of the mountains along the coast there. Um, And, you know, as it gets drier and drier, even now you can almost see like where the upper limit of their existence can occur because there'll be these stands the bottom half is super lush you know redwood and then you look at the top and it's just this dead like almost looks like a lightning strike but like the whole forest just has that that invisible layer of like nope can't persist past this point anymore and it's like dropping by the year and it's just like oh this whole mountain range probably had those at some point but now you're watching it kind of whittle away and change and you know zig and zag as it goes on it's just I don't know. It's just, it's so fucking neat. <laughs> oh yeah. That's wild. I mean, it kind of reminds me of how like, I mean, I, I think of this as being the most extreme in the East, although it also happens in the West, but like, you know, as you ascend in elevation, you really go through like these pretty dramatically different canopy changes um, that are just so interesting. It's like, no, this really can't like break through like this, this one line, you know, suddenly mm-hmm. like, oh, wow. Like I've moved into this whole different forest community. Um, and yeah, it's cool to think about that, how it's just like, nope, this is really like the spot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It only exists here because it feels like it's over there, but it's right here and it shouldn't be. Uh, are you a peak bagger? You like hiking? You know, I love hiking, but I'm not a peak bagger and I never have been. Like, I mean, people in New Hampshire will, I feel like the ultimate peak bagging is like, oh, I've done like all the 48, 4,000 footers of New Hampshire. Or like, I guess there's a similar thing for 14ers in Colorado. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I like, I mean, I lived in New Hampshire for a really long time, worked in the mountains. I don't think I've done all the, no, I haven't done all the 48s. So I don't know. I, I really like hiking, but I feel like just like taking stuff off my list. Yeah, I don't know. I don't do that. Yeah, I definitely enjoy the challenge of 
hiking up something to see something, but if I can do it by car, then I'm just as happy, like just as fulfilled at the end of the day, you know, like, all right, saw it. Cool. I get to drive home now. Hell yeah. Yeah. It's hard to find the motivation to hike up like, you know, a 3000 foot of elevation gain when, you know, you can just drive to the top. I think for me, it depends on why I'm doing it. Mm -hmm. Right. Sometimes I'm like, I want to be out for a day hike and I want to have that experience of going through the forest. And then I'm like, yep, I'll, I want to hike it. Other times I'm like, I want to get to the top so I can see like these plant species. And then I'm like, I want to drive because then I can get it done in the morning and then go somewhere else in the afternoon. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah. One of the first times I had been backpacking was with my friend who's very much about, I I don't know, it sounds like it has a negative connotation, but like he gets it. But he also like, he likes hiking for the physical exertion and likes getting to the top so he can see the landscape. And I do too. But uh, so, yeah, I was like, you know, I couldn't just stop every eight seconds and look at something for two minutes. And like by the time we got to the top, I was like throwing up. And I was just like, I am not as <laughs> built for this as I thought I was. <laughs> like I thought, because, you know, like I hadn't really done it so much before. But I was like, you know, I hike, whatever. And I'm sitting there on like all fours, like crawling to the little fire shelter that we were staying at. Like, <gasps> what is this hobby? Oh, my God. Yeah, it's a different ball game too, when you're carrying like a full pack, you know, yeah. versus just like a little day sack. Yeah, it's funny. I have a really good friend who has been like my hiking partner over many years and she lives in Southern Oregon now. And so often, you know, we'll now go on hikes like when I'm in Southern Oregon doing field work and visiting her. And it's tough now because, you know, for me as a botanist, I'm like, wow, this is a hugely diverse botanical area. I need to stop and look at every single plant because every single one of them is amazing. And it's just very cool to see all these like different species of genera that I'm familiar with, but like maybe I'm not as familiar with this species and think about the biogeographical aspects and all that. And she's very much like, I'm here so we can like quickly get this hike done like get to the top, enjoy the views and like get down. Like she likes plants too, but not at the same level. And so like, we'll go out and she's, she'll be like, all right, like, cool. We did it. Um, listen, why don't we just like go down and like not stop at all? Like, do you think we could do that? (laughs) And I'm like, I'll try. I'll try to only stop at the very special things. (laughs) Yeah. I'm like, well, I kind of use them as sneaky little breaks when I stop and look at something. I'm like really intensely looking at this shrub and it's mostly because I'm like hyperventilating. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I think like you can get out of shape being a botanist because you're like, all right, we're going to spend eight hours on this one mile of flat trail. Just like, you know. The survey I was doing for a while for uh, Bureau of Land Management lands, I was thinking in the beginning it's going to be hiking and bushwhacking with a machete and ah, you know, going places that have never been surveyed before. But it's like most of them are drive up. And then once you're on plot, you're just sitting with an iPad for 10 hours. It's like, oh, this is actually the chillest outdoors job I think I've had. Wow. Yeah. I hear a lot of people talk about like having their iPads out with them in the field. I'm guessing that's because you want to like log your like coordinates and so forth. Yeah. And like survey one, two, three is amazing. We don't have to deal with paper anymore if we don't want to. But yeah, it's just like, I feel like an iPad kid. Like I'm like, all right, I'm here in this beautiful, great basin wilderness and I'm sitting in a camp chair, like tapping away on a screen all day. <laughs> I feel like I'm so lo-fi. Like when I'm out doing my field work, I just like have like a Garmin and I'm just like, yep, it's here. Like, and I'll just like drop a pin 
And then later I'm like having to like transfer a bunch of data. The idea of having like a big, like clunky, like iPad, like, you know, with everything else that I have to deal with is so, I don't know. It's hard for me to think about making that switch, but maybe I should. (laughs) It's worth it. Cause I am always afraid I'm going to like catch a breeze and three days of data sheets are going to be like in a river or something. Also, alternatively, you could drop the iPad in the river, but that's recoverable it's to some degree. Um, but yeah, it's just like, I don't know, I feel like a little scientist, like, bing, 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 yes, I'm observing the rant, da, 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 like filling out my little boxes. But yeah, no, it, it was definitely a culture shock. I was like, so used to just paper and pen and knocking it out very slowly, but it's so much better. Yeah, I... I do have a notebook that I log stuff in, but I mostly do it to keep my advisor happy because he's all like, pencil doesn't wash away or, you know, whatever. Like, you know, and I, I'm just like, this is just like a waste of time. Like, I'm not really going to look at this later because everything is like in the cloud or whatever and so much more easily accessible. Yeah. It's like, oh, get your right in the rain. You'll be, you'll be fine with that. I'm like, right in the rain suck to write in. It's like, just because they're not going to wash away or get crumbled doesn't mean it's like, you know, it's sitting there, you're trying to make the ink or the, the pencil show up, you know? Yeah, totally. So how is it being a field botanist? I'm like, this is like, you know, through most of my botanical career, I guess, you know, which mostly has been, you know, as a student, but I've always been like, yes, that's like the ultimate. That would be the coolest job. So I'm curious how you like it. I love it. I'm actually fairly new to field botany. Like I've done a bit of it, not a bit, I've done a considerable amount, but most of my career has been in restoration and I've just kind of been like a botanist on the side. Um, But yeah, no, it is so much fun. You know, it's one of those things where I complain the whole time I'm there, but then I'm like, God, that was the best week ever, you know? (laughs) Um, It's just, it's so cool being able to like, have a target region and then within that region it's like up to you to figure out what and where i like being able to kind of think on your feet you know having that chase down of a certain because i'm uh, mapping vegetation types so it's basically you're kind of having to hunt them down and get in there and decide uh, like one of the first vegetation types i had mapped might be like a new kind of community for the region it was in which is awesome and also kind of terrifying because it was like my third one and i'm hoping it was right but um yeah it's just it's it's so much fun to be able to like run around all day and kind of be like okay you see that peak top with that south facing slope that's different than that like got to get up there figure out what's growing there figuring out what's growing here and that's where that like biogeography passion kind of comes back where you're seeing these differences so clearly and being able to map them down and have them be known um that being said you know it's like right now it's insanely hot and insanely buggy and insanely just the uv has been singeing me lately but um yeah i don't know if it fits my personality type well i think i'm interested in to see how like the winter computer work goes because i'm just so used to being like this grimy goblin like out living out of a truck for a week and this is like oh okay like whatever whatever you get is what you get you know and so it's kind of up to you to decide how your day goes which i like a lot Mm -hmm. and plus i get to go get paid to get look at plants all day like i did it 
That sounds just so nice. Like, I love the idea of being able to be like, just really focus on an area, you know, one region's flora. Um, Yeah, it just sounds so nice. And yeah, like the computer work must be fun too. Do you code? No, I tried teaching myself R during COVID when I thought it was going to be like, all right, three weeks, this thing will blow over. I'll get a little R certificate, certificate and be on my way. Um, I do want to get back into it because I know it's going to benefit me at the same time. If I can get away with not having to do too much of it, I'm pretty okay with that too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I but, hear that. Um, yeah. Like, I mean, it's just so that's uh, the practical usage of that is amazing. Being able to have this data set that you code and it becomes this like manageable graph, which you can then throw into a map. And then all of a sudden you have like a complete picture of this region basically um i will say on the other hand it has killed my want to go hike and backpack on the weekends like all i want to do is sit inside and like be under a roof for a minute you know Mm -hmm. yeah yeah that makes sense i mean i know like after a long backpacking trip or something or even like after a long stint of field work for me like recently at the end of my field work i was just feeling so burnt out i was just like ah forget everything i just want to chill for a while and Yeah, same. Like, you know, recently I was watching that show Alone on Netflix. It's Mm -hmm. like the the survival experts and all that. And I was like, man, I would last like five days in the show. And then I would be like, I'm ready for like a beer and a burger and like a bed. (laughs) I know you can bring certain personal items. I wonder if anybody's like, can I just bring the six pack and use it (laughs) in case of emergency? That would be funny. I just like imagining them rationing their beer. Like, yeah. I take one sip a day for the next six months. I can have this last the whole time. Yeah. It was funny though, watching that. I was like, oh no, like I, I would be so embarrassed on this show because I would be able to name all the species, but I wouldn't know which ones are edible. Like I have really weak ethnobotany skills. I know. I was thinking about that yesterday. I started off like kind of from that angle of like survivalism and learning. Cause you know, like that's another cool thing about doing field botany is like you have this intimate knowledge of this area like you kind of form a relationship with it sometimes it's adversarial but like i always think like oh if i broke my leg in the top of this mountain and it takes like a full day for like help to come am i going to be able to scrounge up roots and nuts and figure out like i know what not to eat i feel like but in terms of actual edibility i'm pretty out of my element yeah i'm i'm way better well i was gonna say i'm better with fungi than i am with plants but like I mean, I guess I know some edible plants, but not like, I mean, I see some people, you know, like, you know, on Instagram or whatever, and they're like taking cordage and like baking up like roots from plants that I never knew that you could eat. And then I realized like how deeply uninformed I am about survival in any capacity. Yeah. I mean, there's always the, there's that strain of, ethnobotany where it's basically just like new age hippies poaching plants monotropa uniflora being one of them it's tincture season for that right now i don't know what it's supposed to do for you but i i'm pretty sure it doesn't do that i mean i you know there are things that do help you know salicylic acid is straight off of willows but yeah people uh, say all sorts of things about monotropa uniflora and it's really hard because monotropa uniflora does have cultural significance to some indigenous peoples in the united states and so i'm hesitant to make like a statement about that 
but I don't love it when I see people harvesting like huge amounts of it and then making like tinctures. And I'm just thinking like, monotropoids have a lot of secondary metabolites that aren't that good for you that you don't want to be eating um, and like phenols and stuff like that. Um, Yeah. Yeah, there's definitely a strain of like white colonial ethnobotany, I guess, where it's just kind of capitalism has woven its way into the like, oh, how like, you know, every year I hear about how leeks are being just totally overexploited in certain forests and ginseng back east. Like, and I'm like, I'm, I know that this isn't for personal consumption because it's showing up in restaurants and, you know, it's going on Etsy as this cute little mason jar tincture or whatever. But, um, you know, like if you're doing it responsibly and it's like basket weaving is so cool. Like what an intimate way to interact with a plant, you know, like sustainably harvest it, create a tool that you can use for years. Like that's, a, that's the thing I really can appreciate and feel less conflicted about, like, especially as a white European in America, like, oh no, there's, there's ways you can do it where it's not going to be destructive or downright disrespectful to the peoples whose land it actually is like fly fishing. I've gotten really into, and I'm sure I've blathered about plenty on this podcast by now, but like the whole idea of catch and release to some indigenous people is like, why are you just going to fuck with the fish like that? You know? And so like, there's a very strict set of ethics I try to follow when I'm doing that, especially if it's non-native trout, then it's like hell with them. It's an invasive. I don't want to, I don't want to hurt animals for the sake of hurting animals. But at the same time, it's like, you know, I fly fishing is the only way you can really connect with that ecosystem without, you know, if you catch a fish and kill it, that's great. You're, you know, using it in a respectful way to support yourself. But at the same time, it's like, well, I don't want to like catch a fish and then just bonk it on its head. Like that's, it seems like a bummer to me. You know, that's just, that's hunting and I respect hunting, but I don't want to do it myself. Um, so like for me, the only way I could see these, you know, trout is as diverse as any plant species that has a recent diversification. Like they are just so plastic of species. And it's so interesting to see all the different phenotypes and species that are relegated to certain areas. And I feel like, oh, unless I really get into freshwater snorkeling and have all the time in the world, like this is the only way I can connect in that way. Right. Well, that's, you know, a good retirement plan. You can do freshwater snorkeling. Yeah. Dead at 65, I fell down a waterfall. And then you can get into fish. You can be like a fish expert. Yeah. I was always saying like, if I had 200 years of life, I, there are so many things I want to get into, but I have other interests that I like right now. If I could just a little bit more time to polish those off and then start a new thing, I'd be so okay with that. Yeah. Yeah. Life is long. I guess that's, you know, one of the good things about it, at least, you know, depending on how bold you are when you're in the field. <laughs> yeah. No, I've definitely cashed in a few like of my nine lives. I definitely feel like I got to be a little bit more intentional now. <laughs> like I've fallen off of stuff that I should have cracked my head and died off of. So I'm like, now I'm like, you know what? Not pushing it. If I can't get there, not worth it. There's a, there's a seamount in Big Sur uh, that has an individual of bearberry, Arctocephalus uva ursi. And it's hundreds of miles south of the nearest population. And it's just this one that a bird probably pooped out and it has just enough of topsoil for it to persist. And I want to climb up so bad just to go look at it and like see it. Uh, but it's sketchy as hell. And the last time I was down there, I didn't have health insurance. And I was like, that is how that happens. So I'm just going to wait. Maybe someday there's going to be something else that I can do that's a little more accessible and not as gnarly. Yeah, that sounds like a good decision. 
I feel like <laughs> I've had pretty good luck, I guess. A combination of like luck and pretty good risk assessment in the wilderness. I don't think, I guess there was one time when I got into a sketchy situation when I was in New Zealand. Um, but at that point, I think I was just kind of ignoring, you know, my risk. when you're like, oh, this seems like a bad idea, but we'll just see how this goes. You know, it was one of those situations. Um, but I definitely get nervous. When I was out on my like most recent stint of field work, there was like, I don't know, just a lot of cougar activity um, in the Olympics. And mm. someone was attacked by a cougar. One of my populations was inaccessible. And, oh, you know, everything's like, don't hike alone. And there I am alone stay aware. And there I am just like staring at plants on the ground and no way aware of, you know, my surroundings in any meaningful way. (laughs) It was was like super stressful. I I just kept thinking, I was like, man, how much do I get paid as a grad student? And I'm going to like maybe (laughs) die out here getting eaten by a cougar. Great. (laughs) I know like my personal brain, like when there's a really inaccessible place we want to survey, my personal brain's like hell yeah i'll take the time and go out there and do some sketchy shit to do it but i'm like wait no like the benefit analysis is not working out in my favor with this like <laughs> best case scenario i waste three hours to get one stand mapped worst case scenario i break my leg or fall off and split my head for you know for what yeah yeah totally it's always like you know that that battle between like self-preservation and like the love of the, you know, <laughs> love of the science, like, but eventually sense prevails or not. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's prevailing more lately. So I think I'm on the right track. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, well, thank you so much for talking to me. Yeah. Thanks really for having me on. This is fun. Um, do you have anything you have coming out, talks, papers, presentations you want people to know about? No, I'm pretty like early on really in my like data collection process now. So it's probably going to be like another year before I have stuff coming out on this. But I guess when that happens, then uh, it will be out there. Yeah.